have, a, have air conditioning after this week. We've sung about the love of God this morning, and we're reminded we love Him because He first loved us. It was His love entices and draws our Him. We'll be talking this morning about that love, about the love we are to have for God. But I was reminded of some things I was studying this text. Action than words. What does that mean? Well, it means what I do, and we usually use it. When we say actions speak louder than words. We usually mean that in more of a negative context. In other words, your actions are saying something different than what your mouth is. But what it means is that how I behave can overshadow what I say. It doesn't mean words are unimportant. Quite the contrary, they're extremely important. But how you act, how you behave, what you how you act, how you behave, and what you do will either positively reinforce what it is that you say that you believe, or it will prove you a liar and a fraud. I think when the world looks at the lives of many who call themselves Christians, I think they feel they've been lied to. I think that's a sad reality. As we rejoin Jesus in a crowded Jerusalem during Passover week, Jesus has two final public interactions with the religious leaders. And Jesus reminds us of two eternally important truths. And he does this by answering, first, what is the greatest commandment, and secondly, by helping us to see who the Son of God really is. If you have your Bibles and would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 22 as we continue our study here in the Gospel of Matthew. As I think about these two truths, what we'll see on earth about what is the greatest commandment, as I see who is the Messiah, I can't help but wonder how well does my life proclaim these truths? How well do my actions speak? Read along with me, if you would, beginning in verse 34 of chapter 22. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. Now the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? 
no one was able to answer him a word. Nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which has been so faithfully passed down to us. Thank you for your, the Spirit who has preserved this word, that inspired the writers, that helped carry it forward to bring it to our ears this morning. Pray that we would submit to it, that we would put ourselves under it, that we would desire to be measured by it. Help us to think rightly about our love for you. Help us to think rightly about you, as this text will cause us to do and should cause us to do. And Father, I pray for any here this morning that do not know you, do not know how to express that love towards you, that you will give them ears to hear especially, that you would that your spirit would do the work of washing, regeneration, and renewing that is so desperately needed. In your name, amen. We have been observing over the past couple of weeks the increasing hostility toward Jesus. Now, it started early on in his ministry. I think we can all agree to that. It's growing. It's been growing more and more hostile. It has been more and more antagonistic. The past couple of weeks, we've seen it really reach the, the apex of those encounters. It is spewing venom as they are asking their questions of Jesus. This is Jesus' last week on earth before his crucifixion. It's not technically his last week of ministry since he ascends. I spoil the story, I know. But he comes back and he ministers for a while longer. But this is the last week. It's the week of Passover leading up to the crucifixion. And we looked at this interaction last week, where really over the past two weeks we've looked at them. Religious leaders are trying to get Jesus to fall out of favor with either the people on the one hand or Rome on the other. Take either one, both of them would do the job. They want to get rid of Jesus. And as they're public confrontation begins to draw to a close, and they retreat back to their dens from which they came, two things happen here in this text. First, we observe the impact Jesus' words are having on at least some of the religious leaders. Secondly, Jesus asks a question that really does send them scurrying into hiding. Verse 34 that we've read opens with, there's this astonishment and amazement that is hanging over the crowds, and even over the religious leaders. We've seen it in that way, both in verse 22 as well as in verse 33, as Jesus answers their questions. Even some of the religious leaders cannot help but be amazed at what Jesus is saying. We see that there in verse 22. Even the religious leaders couldn't help but be amazed. There were, you recall, two leading religious groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There were a few others, but those made up the two largest groups. And they had each taken their turn. They had gone around with Jesus. And each came away defeated. So these two groups that really didn't like each other very much and didn't get along, they didn't play well together, we now see them gathering together. A common enemy makes for some strange friends. And as they're gathering together, one of them, someone steps forward. And notice it's a little different. It wasn't as premeditated. It wasn't 
the group sending him forward. It was one of their own step forward in verses 35 and 36, a scribe or a lawyer. And he has a question for Jesus. Mark in his gospel leaves out the overtly negative implication of this question that Matthew includes when Matthew uses the word testing. In fact, Mark shows that the question originated from something of skeptical admiration to the answers Jesus had given so far. The tenor of this question is a little bit different. In fact, if you've looked at the other questions, this one may feel a little bit like a softball question. But as Matthew notes, while there may have been some admiration in this lawyer, and that may have been some of the impetus behind his question, the question is still a test. And that word test is never used publicly of a person asking a question of God or testing God. Never. It is always negative. It's one thing to ask a question of God as the psalmists do, with a desire to truly learn and be changed by the answers that God provides, or to inquire of Scripture eagerly as did, with excitement while also being discerning and wanting to see how Scripture affirms these things to be true. But it is quite another thing to set yourself up as judge and jury over God. And that's really what the lawyer's doing. For all of his admiration that Mark draws out, and all, however impressed he may be, marveling at the answers provided so far, he is still acting as judge over Jesus. And that's what Matthew wants us to understand. This lawyer is approaching Jesus, not as one approaches a king or a sovereign, but as the judge who will determine whether or not this person is worth believing. And by the way, this, most of the world views the Bible and views Christ. Really, that's why apologetics, while helpful at times, has limited value. Apologetical approaches are more useful to the believer, I think, than the unbeliever. Because even if you can convince a skeptic to recognize the error of their argument, you haven't changed the heart. They're still trying to stand as judge over God. They're still trying to decide, is this someone I need to submit to? Until they can approach in faith and humility and recognize the greatness of God, the greatness of Christ, the gift of salvation. There can be no salvation. So as Paul says to the Corinthians, we preach the foolishness of the cross. We preach Christ crucified. That needs to be the core of our message. It doesn't make apologetics worthless. But the core of our message must be Christ crucified. Where are we? Ah, the lawyer. He asks Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? This was a common debate among religious leaders. They had not only created a legal system of some 613 laws based on the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, but they had divided these laws into heavy and light. That is, really important and somewhat important laws. But even though they had created these divisions, there was no unanimity, no agreement on what were the fullest of fullest of light laws. So it gave way to lots of, lots of debating, lots of disagreements. Countless hours were spent trying to decide which category a particular law belonged to. 
Now, as we've noted, this is probably the most benign question that Jesus has been asked so far. We really reached the apex last week, and this is on the tail end of that. It doesn't seem to be devised so much to trap Jesus, at least certainly not the way the other two were. Instead, we see it's asked by a scribe, a lawyer who is impressed, but wants to know if Jesus is the real deal. Again, elevating himself as the determiner of Jesus' credibility. That, that's really what he's after. The furthest thing from his mind is that Jesus is God, that he is the resurrection and the life that we talked about last week. So Jesus answers in verses 37 through 38. It always amazes me, humbles me a bit, the way that Jesus gives time and attention to answering these questions from the skeptics from those who are so hard-hearted, really teaches us patience. And he answers in verses 37 and 38, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Now the heart, soul, and mind are not mutually exclusive categories. They're overlapping categories. This doesn't have to do with some division of a person into three parts of a heart, a soul, and a mind. It's really just a way of emphasizing the totality of a person. We like to emphasize things in three. If I go to a restaurant, I want to order the biggest, juiciest, tastiest steak they have. I use three different descriptions because I want to emphasize it. And so we use those words to describe, and here the emphasis is describing laying on the totality of a person. Everything that makes up a person, all that a person is, all of our energy, all of our faculties, all of our emotions, are to be directed at loving God. It's clear, it's repeated throughout the Old Testament. It's not even the first time Jesus has said it in his ministry. But it's rather abstract we were to close out at this moment and I say, your mission this week is to go and love God, what are you going to do? How are you going to do that? What does that look like? What does it mean to love God? Well, before the lawyer can answer or respond, Jesus goes ahead and addresses this. But wait, there's more. I'll give you an extra for free. I'm going to tell you what the second greatest commandment is. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, first off, Jesus is not instructing us to love ourselves. We do that really well on our own. In fact, that's what gets us into most of our trouble, It's loving ourselves. Paul notes in Ephesians 5.29, no one ever hated his own flesh. Don't have to worry about that. We're really good at loving ourselves. We don't need any help. We don't need any instruction. We don't need any reminders to do that. The emphasis, the focus, the attention here, there I go with the threes again, is about learning to love others. In these verses, Jesus brings together Deuteronomy 6.5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, with Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. And by tying together the love of God with the love for neighbor, we are reminded that love for God, that abstract idea, is concretely represented in love toward others. 
how I act, how I behave, how I think, how I talk to others. You say that you love God? How do I know that? Your actions toward others. They should back it up. Above all other behaviors, and it should be more than just this, but above all behaviors, how you treat others is the biggest indicator of whether you really love God. John says this in 1 John. 1 John 4.20 If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a what? A liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And in keeping with all of our heart, soul, and mind, we're to do this with the entirety of our being. Paul notes in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. What is it? That you love your neighbor. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. In verse 40, Jesus says something that's rather important. On these two commandments depend the entirety, the whole law and prophets. There's ways of referring to the Old Testament that Jewish writers would do that even Jesus himself does. If you want to refer to the entirety of the Old Testament, you sometimes will say just the law and the prophets, and that would include everything that's in the Old Testament, all 39 books in our English Bibles of the Old Testament. Now you may be saying, well, I thought there were some writings in there, like maybe the Psalms. Well, they're in there as well. But if you go to Acts, you see that even David is called a prophet. And so it wasn't uncommon to have the entirety of the Old Testament referred to as the law and the prophets. At other times, you'll see the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Either way, whether it was referred to in two parts or in three parts, it referred to the entirety of the Old Testament. Everything that had been written down previously, all of it depended on these two commandments. It all hung on these two commandments. What he's not saying is it's or law. They're not fighting one another. They're not in contradiction to one another. He's not saying the law is bad. He's not saying it's bad to follow instructions to God, that that's somehow secondary to love. Jesus is emphasizing the priority of love within the law. That if the law is correctly, you'll see that love is the priority. Because the whole law, or all of scriptures, are based upon loving God and loving others. And what it really helps to do is provide an interpretive grid for reading the law of God, reading the Old Testament, even understanding our New Testament. Because all that is in there is intended to help you love God and love others. The Old Testament is filled with passages that reinforce the importance of loving God loving others. And the failure to do those things undermines all other attempts at worship and good deeds. Failure to love God and to demonstrate it through obedience and through loving others negates all of your other worship.
The Old Testament is filled with passages that reinforce this. Here's just a couple. Hosea 6.6. You may remember Jesus has quoted this a couple of times. For I delight in loyal love rather than sacrifice, and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But I thought sacrifice and burnt offerings were to be done regularly, every day in the temple or the tabernacle. It had been instituted since the time of Moses. I mean, isn't this important? Isn't this necessary? Isn't it right? Well, not if there's no love. Not if there's not an understanding of what God desires. What does he desire? Micah 6, 6 through 6, 8. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings? With yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in a thousand rams? In ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for all my rebellious acts? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Notice who the object of this is. To do justice. Who do you do justice to? To love kindness. Who are you to be kind to? And to walk humbly with your God. There's a lot more. You could go to Deuteronomy 10.12 for Samuel 15.22. Isaiah 1.11 through 18. Or Isaiah 43.22-24. Isaiah or Amos, excuse me, 5, 21 through 24. Proverbs repeats it in chapter 15, chapter 21, chapter 28. And Jesus' answer condemns the religious leaders because they utterly fail at loving their neighbor. For all of their knowledge, all of their understanding, all of their study, all of their efforts, they fail at loving their neighbor. Rather, they and they harass the people, the very people they're to be caring for and protecting. They're like the religious leaders of Hosea and Isaiah's day who pillaged the people and abused the orphan and the widow. In fact, Matthew draws this connection for us. It's not up to us to even try to figure this out. If you were to skip ahead a bit and read chapter 23, it opens with that condemnation. The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you to do Do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. In other words, do what they say, not what they do. Because their actions speak louder than words. They tie up heavy burdens. They lift But they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. They do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor, the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. There's many other times Jesus has condemned the overbearing nature of the religious leaders. And so this was condemnation for those gathered together that day. Mark notes that this lawyer or scribe actually commends Jesus on his answer. And that was pretty unique. Again, in light of what was going on, despite the fact that he was testing Jesus, he's more soft-hearted than any of the others so far. Rather than becoming angry or indignant, he praises him. The lawyer is different. According to Mark, Jesus in turn notes, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You're not there yet. You're still testing me. But you're not far from the kingdom of God. I, I like to believe that this lawyer, like Nicodemus, 
and Saul, who became Paul, eventually did become a disciple of Christ in the following days, weeks, or years ahead. When he finished speaking, Jesus, seeing them gathered together, perhaps to provide insight, further insight to this lawyer and to the crowds, or perhaps just to make it abundantly clear and seal the direction of the religious leaders toward their murderous intent, Jesus asks a question of those leaders that are gathered around. And he asks them a question about the Christ, which is the Greek term for Messiah in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew. It's the Messiah. Christ is the Greek translation of Messiah. And he asks, whose son is this Messiah that you are waiting for? See, they were waiting for a Messiah. They were waiting for a Christ. They wanted a Christ. The problem is the Christ they wanted was not the Christ that had come. The Christ they wanted was one of their own making. He was human in origin. He was powerful. He would overturn the rulers. And through his power, through his throwing off the yoke of the Gentiles, would usher in the kingdom of God. That's who they were expecting. And they answered, the son of David. Now, if you've been with us through even some of the Gospel of Matthew so far, you pause and you say, well, that's not a wrong answer, right? No, they're not entirely wrong. But just like a long math equation, even if you have most of it right, if you don't have it all right, it's not going to end up correct. You can... Add together 2 plus 2 plus 5 and say the answer is 8. Say, no, it's not correct. But I got 2 plus 2 right. You don't get credit for what's right. They don't get any credit for it either. Jesus instead exposes their ignorance and insufficient understanding of who the Messiah is. They're waiting for that human descendant of David who will rule and reign as king, who will throw off the yoke of Gentile oppression and usher in the kingdom of God. So Jesus asks them, and he opens up the scroll, if you will. Metaphorically, he's got it memorized. And Jesus asks, how then does David, quoting from Psalm 110, writing by the Spirit, I love when he just drops in these great theological insights, the inspiration of the Spirit in the writing of Scripture. But how does David, who is writing, call the Messiah Lord? When he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. And then he asks, if David calls the Messiah Lord, how can the Messiah be David's son? How can he be only a physical descendant of David? Jesus is quoting that opening verse from Psalm 110, a, a psalm that was accepted already by this time as messianic. They just hadn't read it carefully. They hadn't thought hard about it. Just as Jesus used the Pentateuch against the Sadducees, as we saw last week, to show them their ignorance of the resurrection, a Messianic Psalm to show them their ignorance of the Messiah. The Messiah, the son of David, is not merely a man. As Martin Luther observed concerning 
the passage in Psalm 110, sit, says God to him, not at my feet, not over my head, but next to me, as high as I sit. Sitting next to God, what else is that than being also God? For God is so jealous for his honor that as he said himself in Isaiah 42.8, he will give it to no other. And yet here, says the psalmist, sits one who is like him. From this it follows, this one must be God. For all their knowledge, Jesus reveals how little they really understood about the Christ, how wrong their expectation, their anticipation of the Christ was. Jesus is not denying that the Messiah is the son of David. He is proclaiming that he is more than the son of David. There is more to Christ than just the human lineage. The human lineage is important, very important, but there is more to it than that. He is showing the preexistence of this son of David, just as we learned last week, and more importantly, that the Messiah is the son of God. Now, maybe that doesn't sound too controversial to you. But take a step back for a moment and think about this. Think about the context. Jesus entered Jerusalem back in chapter 21. What did the people, many of the crowd, begin to proclaim as he entered Jerusalem? Hosanna, the son of David. In fact, the children are still singing that in the courtyards in verse 13 of chapter 21. I mean, if it's a catchy tune, they're probably still singing it. And rather than refute it, when the religious leaders asked him, what are you going to do about this? Jesus affirmed it. A big part of why we've had this increased animosity and this interaction in chapter 22 is because they hated the fact that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, the Son of God. I'm sorry, the son of David. So how does he conclude this? By saying that he's not only the son of David, he is God. He is the son of God and he is equal to God. And he uses their own scripture and their own answer so that they have no further response. There's no way to refute or contradict what he has said. The logic Holds. It is profound. It is tight. There was a religious leader, a Pharisee, who was likely in Jerusalem at this time. He was probably there. We don't know that, so don't go building a doctrine off of it, but he was probably there because he was a leading Pharisee, and his name was Saul. He to be known as Paul. He seemed to have understood this message. It became the foundation of his ministry. Listen to what he said at the beginning of his letter to the Romans. Paul, remember his name was changed from Saul to Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, who is born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. What Paul understands, 
what we should understand, what angered the religious leaders so much, is that Jesus claims to be God. The same God who Jesus just said must be loved with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And that infuriated the religious leaders. Both of those things, the call to love and the belief about Christ, are important things. They're high things. They're hard things. I can't help but wonder, how well does my life proclaim these two truths? How well do my actions back up those words? I think it's a question we can all benefit from asking and answering as honestly as possible. Just ask your children or your spouse. I'm not talking about perfection. We're all going to sin. But what is the trajectory of life, of your life? How do you respond when you sin? Do you ask for forgiveness? How often do I act like the young lawyer? I I approach Scripture not with a heart ready to submit to it, but questioning it, deciding what portions of Scripture are worthy of my obedience. And I I rarely do this consciously. I do this subconsciously, right? We do it when we fail to love our neighbor. We do it when we grumble and complain because clearly that wasn't important for us to, at this moment, obey the Scripture to do everything without grumbling and complaining. If we really trusted God, if we really believed He for us and does what's best for us, Would we really grumble and complain? It's just another way of testing God, isn't it? In fact, that's how God described it of the Israelites. Do not test me as that wilderness generation did. How did they test them? They grumbled and complained. Have you ever thought about that? That when you grumble and complain, you put yourself right there with the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are testing God? Actually, if you really want to make it serious, go back to Matthew 4. Because who was the first one to test Christ and tempt Christ? Do we really believe God wants what is best for us? It's one thing to struggle through difficulties and ask, how long, O Lord? It's another thing to sinfully complain instead of declaring as Job does, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And it's not just grumbling and complaining. That's an easy one to pick on because I do it, you do it. But any form of disobedience shows a lack of love toward God. And as we've seen this morning, especially not loving others. And I think a lot of times this results in that second half of the passage from a low view of God, a low view of Christ. It seems to me that we have a problem today that is similar to the religious leaders who had an inadequate understanding of who Jesus is. And it's not so much that those who attend a Bible-believing church will outright deny the deity of Christ, but that we ignore it in our lives and in our conversation. We seem to have forgotten what it means that Jesus is Lord. And so... Our lives and our worship tend to lower Jesus to the status of friend and companion. 
And he is a friend, a friend of sinners, but he is much more than that. He is, as the Nicene Creed says, very God of very God. And we need to worship him as Lord of lords. If we viewed Christ rightly, if we viewed him as Lord, if we viewed him as God of very God, would that not impact how we behave toward others? Knowing what he has asked us to do? I don't think it's a stretch to say that anytime you find yourself sinning towards others, anytime you find yourself sinning, that you are not thinking rightly about Christ, rightly about God. He's probably the furthest thing from your mind. C.S. Lewis famously noted, you can believe a lot of things about Jesus, but at the end of the day, when you look at all the things that he's claimed, you have to come to one of three conclusions. He's either a liar, he's made up all of this, none of it's true, he's dead and gone, or he was a lunatic, he actually believed everything he said, and he was crazy, or he's Lord. Who do you think he is? Your actions speak louder than words. Let's pray. Help us to remember this truth that our actions do speak louder than words. Help us to learn to love ourselves, to put to death the pride that is within us, to show our love for you, how we. with our family, be put into practice in the church and in our relationships with neighbors and those nearby, those we come in contact with. We thank you for your, your great patience with us. We have in